0: In all those cases, we have agency. That's the thing that felt lost to me 10 years ago professionally. That's the thing that I see so many people struggle with, which is like, where is my agency? Where is my ability to shape my future, to design the life I want to have, the work I want to do? How much does work creep into my life? If I feel totally subject to my job all the time, I don't get to make those choices. If I get to create space that's what the reflective practice is for, then I can make different decisions and I can reclaim my whole personhood. I'm not just a worker, I'm a human.
1: Welcome to the Good Life Coach Podcast. I am your host, Michelle Lamoureux. The intention of this show is to awaken you to your fullest potential. Join me each week for inspiring interviews to elevate an area of your life as well as interviews with women entrepreneurs who are creating success on their own terms. Each episode provides actionable tips to guide you to design a life you love. Hey there, it's Michelle and welcome back to the Good Life Coach podcast. So as we're all aware, unfortunately, millions of people are unemployed right now because of the pandemic. You may be one of them or someone you know and love Has lost their job. And so I wanted to bring on a guest that could help us navigate this space and have a conversation around how do we make work of meaning? How do we find our resiliency? And joining us today is Dr. Naila Bari, who is a former Dean of Students at Columbia Business School, a leadership consultant, and a coach. And for Naila's dissertation to get her doctorate, she decided to do qualitative research around people who had been laid off in 2008 during the recession to study what made them resilient. And she was curious, what helped some people thrive, why some people stayed static, and why others struggled? And so she did the research with these people a few years after the actual recession, was able to really dig deep. And what she discovered was that there were certain behaviors that helped people thrive. And so today we're going to talk about those behaviors and she's going to give us specific exercises that are going to help us do both inner and outer work, which she'll explain what that means to help gain clarity so that we can feel that we have more agency around our work. This is a timely conversation and one that I hope you will benefit from with all of the great tips that Nyla shares today. So let's get into the show. Hey, Nyla, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here.
1: I'm so happy you're here. Your work is really interesting. So, you're a coach, consultant, facilitator, professor, and researcher. And your work in the world is to help people do their greatest work in the world, which is such a gift, and especially right now. Especially right now. Yeah. So, um, millions of people have lost their job. I know people personally who've lost their jobs. Um, and navigating that space can be so painful. And I think the instinct is to just jump into the next thing or really to just find a a source of income again for your family. But what's interesting is you've done some research and back in 2008, there was the recession and this is not a recession, it's a pandemic, but again, people losing their jobs. And you was, I think three to five years out were interviewing people and you found that there were certain behaviors that help some people thrive, some stayed static, and some struggled. I would love it. um, Actually, before we get into that, I do just want to just have you introduce yourself and the work that you do in your words, and then we can jump into that.
0: Sure, sure. I'm so happy to be here, Michelle, and I'm so glad you are wanting to talk with me about the world of work and how we engage with it. Um, I sometimes say that the work I do is to help people heal their relationships with work and to make a place for them where they can express themselves with the work they do. And I come at it from a couple of different avenues – But the culminating project that really told me this is what I was meant to do in the world was my research for my dissertation. I was a very long-suffering doctoral student. It took me forever to finish. It took me 13 years from beginning to end to do my doctorate, um, which is a very long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, the project that ultimately culminated in my finishing was uh, qualitative research around people who had been laid off Mm -hmm. in 2008. And I was interested in the question because I'd been always interested by why do some people come back from setbacks differently than others. And my vantage point was different because I worked with MBA students for a very long time and I would see them wrestle with everything from very small problems or what seemed to me to be a small problem to very substantial problems. And I was always curious about what it was that allowed some people to come back um, so when it came to writing my dissertation, I looked at layoff and I was interviewing people several years after the crisis of 2008. And as I often say, the kind of big relief I found in analyzing all this data was that the things that distinguished people who thrived from people who didn't were all behavioral It really had a lot less to do with whether they would describe themselves as generally optimistic or had a very high happiness set point. It really had to do with things they did. And sometimes the things they did were not things that would have been in their wheelhouse anyway. They were not naturally people who were meditators or journalers or people who were very skilled networkers, but they pretty much found their way to a set of behaviors because they felt back into a corner because all the other things they were doing were not working Um, And what I've loved about the work since that time that I did the original research is that I find that these behaviors are available to everybody Mm -hmm. in the good times and in the bad times. And so we happen to be in a moment where, like you said, millions of people are losing their jobs or being furloughed or facing the prospect of unemployment. And that's overwhelming and scary. And yet, I think there are things that we can do. Um, And you said something really wise, which is that I think the instinct, understandably, is always to like buckle down and get back to work really fast to just kind of push it aside and just get back to work. Sometimes that's an option. Sometimes it's a necessity. Sometimes it's not available to us. Um, and that's what I was finding with the people in my study is that they wanted to get back to work, and sometimes they just couldn't. They couldn't find the appropriate way to put their skills to use um, so I always think that is, I want to always recognize the fact that there are people who just need to get back to work. We have to do that. But yeah, I think this is an opportunity for us to reflect and to plan and to explore and to ask ourselves really good questions. And I'm hopeful that's what we can talk about today. Yeah,
1: no, this is so good. And actually it's interesting to hear that optimism, you know, being optimistic wasn't in fact what allowed people to thrive because right. I would, I would have made that assumption as well oh, you know, those with the glass have full approach, you know, might might do better. So that's actually really helpful. And I think for a lot of people who are feeling anxiety, fear, deep stress, you know, worry around finances right now, to hear that is helpful. So take us into those key behaviors. I mean, what yeah. Uh, yeah, what 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 did you find? What did you discover?
0: So, over time the way I've started to express um, these behaviors is into families of work. So, I talk about the work that we do that's inward facing, I call that the inner work, and then the work that's more like activities that put us out of our homes, out of our minds, which is outer work. So, there's a series of things that people do in both of these domains, and but what I think is important is that we become familiar and comfortable playing in both of those spaces, right? Doing the internal work of exploring the internal landscape, of going back into one's work history and trying to make sense of it and decipher it for signs and signals and clues, and also get comfortable stepping out into the world, which of course these days is behind a laptop, but talking to people experimenting doing outreach gathering information that comes from outside of our minds Um, so what i was finding in the research is that the behaviors lined up pretty neatly into these two categories and the people who were really thriving were engaging in first this inner work and the most common behavior in the inner work is some sort of reflective practice Uh, for most people that looks like journaling Um, something with a pen and paper where they are really reflecting on important questions about work that has delighted them, work they're really proud of, work they aspire to, the role of work in their whole lives, whether that's something they're really happy about or something they wish was different. Um, That's how most people reflect is through pen and paper or journal. It's what I have most of my clients do. Some people do other things like the long walk in the woods or jogging prayer and meditation come to mind. A lot of people engage in that kind of deep spiritual practice. Mm. And the goal is to get out of the churn of the daily thoughts into looking at it from a bigger picture and trying to figure out, well, what does it mean? If I'm always thinking about something, if I'm always asking myself a series of questions, if I feel agony every time I think about that last job I have, what does it mean? What does it signal to me? That is the primary form of inner work. And like I said, What I found is that most people I was speaking with were not people who would have said, oh, I've kept a journal since high school. Like They were people who were like, I got to a point where I was home, I was cranky. My husband was like, you got to do something else. And he handed me a notebook, you know, (laughs) or one of those things, or, you know, like people were back into a corner, you know, Mm -hmm. or my friend dragged me to a yoga class Mm -hmm. after watching me sit on my couch for three months and apply for 150 jobs that I didn't get a call about. So they're like something else might work because this is not working. And what I found is 100% of the people who met my definition of thriving or meeting a stage of career renewal were doing this sort of reflective practice. So that's the dominant form of inner work that I talk about. It takes a lot of different shapes. There's a lot of ways we can get there, but it really requires just being with yourself, sitting with yourself, understanding yourself.
1: I love it so much. And actually, it's actually the practices that we all need, regardless if we've lost a job. I mean, when you talk about this, um, even in my own work and just where the state of the world right now, I have been bringing pen to paper every night and it's been grounding me. And in fact, the episode that just came out today with a woman named Suzanne Kingsbury, she's a writing coach and editor and helps people bring their work out into the world. We literally just had this conversation about the power of putting pen to paper and using words to heal anxiety, to get in touch with your truth, to, you know, talk to your higher self and get information and really feel reconnected again. So I love that so much. It's so beautiful. And the other thing that you talked about, which is interesting in terms of our relationship to work, I know you talk about this, that this is an important Mm. piece. And um, I'd love for you to speak on it. The one thing I will note first, though, is. When I was in house in corporate, I was head of marketing for a major law firm and I love my job. And the founder died unexpectedly mm. at 63. And within a year and a half, the entire culture and the entire firm just unraveled. And mm-hmm. it was and I and the way I always equated it to my now husband at the time boyfriend, I was like, it's like going, you know, you're you're in a relationship, you're going, you know, it's so familiar, the surroundings, everything's so familiar but it doesn't feel good anymore.
0: And you wish it
1: did. You want to just go back to that good feeling, but sadly you can never go back and it's heartbreaking, just like a breakup. So can you talk more about this?
0: this? I say this all the time. So one of the things, I mean, I use this metaphor of um, the relationship all the time when I think about work, right? Because now I'm somebody who like you had a job in an organization I loved. I mean, when I say I love, I mean, I loved this job, Mm -hmm. loved it. Um, (laughs) And I have to tell you, sometimes that was a great thing. Sometimes that was a great way of being, and it brought out the best of me. But just like a relationship, it could also bring out my obsessive qualities, my overcommitment, my overurgency. But one of the things I started, what happened in my life and my research is, is kind of interesting, was that I was approaching, I mentioned the 13 years in a doctoral program. It turned out that at this job that I'd had at a business school which was a huge part of my life and a great source of joy and pleasure in my life i was coming up ac- upon these big numbers you know my my age i was turning 40 my number of years there i was approaching 15 years at this institution and then the dissertation it was like i had been in the program so long that they were like gently showing me the door <laughs> so all these things were happening in my life and then i was researching these people who'd had the ultimate breakup right the rug pulled out from under them, the relationship and not on their terms, on someone else's terms. And I was noticing the language that they were using around loss, around grief, around belonging. Um, And I was noticing that the people who understood that they were not the job, that something separate from them was going on, were having much different, better outcomes. And so I started forcing myself to look at my own situation with that same lens, like this fact that I'm feeling a little bit of burnout, The fact that there were leadership changes I wasn't really delighted by, it was all that I was like, if I use this idea that I'm not my job, I don't just do my job, but I relate to my job, like these people who were separated from their work, I felt I had choices. And that's become the lens through which I think about work all the time now. It's a relationship. And sometimes that relationship is wonderful. Sometimes it's painful. But in all those cases, we have agency. That's the thing that felt lost to me. 10 years ago, professionally. That's the thing that I see so many people struggle with, which is like, where is my agency? Where is my ability to shape my future, to design the life I want to have, the work I want to do? How much does work creep into my life? If I feel totally subject to my job all the time, I don't get to make those choices. If I get to create space, that's what the reflective practice is for then I can make different decisions and I can reclaim my whole personhood. I'm not just a worker. I'm a human. Um, So yeah, that's how I come at this and that's how I think about it.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. And I wonder just generationally how that I you know I know that's not what your research was but I'd be curious on your thoughts because when I think about it we're we're around the same age and I think of people you know that I know of who've lost their jobs who've been in companies for 15 years so I was mm-hmm. there 10 years and had been thinking actually of leaving but was staying out of loyalty again a, a word that you would use in a relationship I was feeling sure. loyal to the founder and wanting to help you know things transition as best I could based on my role um, it's just so interesting because I think with the millennials, um, their career path looks very different than our, ours is as Gen Xers. And then even with baby boomers and I'm seeing a lot of, um, Gen Xers really getting hit hard right now. Um, but I mean, that's obviously not where
0: your research is. I'm just it's curious. Not, what your but th- I'm, you, I am, you know, when I was researching, I mean, I think about my parents, um, who both worked for, I mean, my father worked for one company from in various formats as it was acquired and then spun off, you know, but for most of his career. Um, And I think about some of the people who I interviewed who were closer to my father's age than to my age. And yes, they had, I mean, some of what was so damaging about the experience was the severing of what they viewed as a long-term relationship where there was supposed to be commitment, right? Mm -hmm. And there's tons of writing about, how the employer and employment contract was broken as a result of the recession. We've all kind of changed our thinking about that. But um, like you, I think I I talk about this a lot with people who have been in organizations for a long time. Whether or not you rationally know that there's not a deal between you guys that means you can't leave or they can't leave. When you, one of the things that happens when you're with an organization for a long time is you start feeling like we're in this together, right? Like I'm bound to you. My identity is is tied up in the evolution of this of this organization so my growth and your growth are kind of the same thing uh by the way that's not true as we all know but it's that i think makes it layoff or any kind of displacement or separation period when you've been somewhere for a long time inevitably it makes people feel it more profoundly and so to even to this day as i deal with people who are even leaving voluntarily uh if they've been there for a long time the separation is much more difficult, same way it would be if you, we were talking about a long-term partner versus a short-term relationship. Um, But yeah, I just, I mean, I feel like we could play with this metaphor all day long because there's yeah. almost, you know, we were used to make beautiful music together. It feels a little flat right now. I want to reinfuse it. I mean, <laughs> I have so much fun in classrooms and workshops with this language and people always are like, oh my God, I, I've done that. I've done that. I've always thought, you know, if I could just introduce a spark back into the relationship. I'd be happy at work again. Right. Yeah. We can keep
1: going. No, but it's so helpful because I think people are going to go, yes, that was my experience or that's been my experience or, okay, that's validating. This is why it is so painful. Even yeah. though maybe I've thought about leaving, even though I chose to leave, even whatever the circumstances, yeah. even though as like, go. I'm a little go.
0: bored, but it meets my other needs, right? Like how many times have you heard that? Like, <laughs> you know, there's no fire, right? There's no spark, but... <laughs> It pays the bills. <laughs> so, oh my you know, how, how many friends you have in relationships where they're like, yeah, it's not really fun, but it's reliable. Right? So. <laughs> right. But this is helpful. So if we bring it back
1: to the lens of the people who thrived, who did yeah. the reflective work, going mm-hmm. into a journaling process, extracting what was good, what they wish was there. I mean, looking at it, I think if you do look at it from the lens of, you know, this was it's not a relationship you were in relationship to your work mm-hmm. but you know extracting all of those pieces um i think is incredibly powerful to help yeah. gain that agency that you talked about i love yeah, that word yeah. so much but what about the so what about the outer work what does that mm. look like
0: so outer work so i think about a lot of the stuff in terms of of data and collecting information so even the inner work as reflective as personal as heart centered and soulful as it can be I think of it as information that we're gathering, like what are the learnings and the insights about my desires, my accomplishments, my gifts, my talents, my curiosities. That becomes our primary data set is our stuff, the stuff that we learn from looking within. Uh, Then we have to go do the work of collecting outside data to start testing things. So some of that comes, of course, through networking and through talking to people and to Looking at roles or companies or industries that we admire and respect or can't stop thinking about and starting to understand why is that compelling to me or why is that pushing me away? Like, why am I repulsed by that? I have to start to understand what that means to me about what I want and what I need at this period of my life. So what I was finding people doing in terms of outer work was, of course, strategic networking. But one of the things I thought was really interesting is that they weren't just networking to learn about the other person or the company, but they were networking to learn about themselves through that lens. So if I was going to, I think about networks like a rings of a tree, right? The innermost ring is the most intimate people who can speak to you with knowledge around your performance, your skills, your gifts, your blind spots, all that stuff. They would go to those people and say, okay, help me understand what I don't see. Help me imagine the way in which we used to work together. And imagine me moving into an an adjacent field or a different kind of role. Where would you see me shining? Where would you see me falling? Why might that be the case? Mm. So they were not just going out there saying, tell me about your job and your career and this industry, but help me see myself through your mm-hmm. eyes in your new context. And that. that's super vulnerable making because you basically have to say, I need help seeing myself clearly. I need help imagining a future. I can't do it by myself. But the people who were doing that were having really great outcomes. They were getting further in these conversations. People knew how to help them mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. You know, one of the things I get a lot as someone who people reach out to a lot is, I just want to pick your brain, or I just want to learn about higher education I mean I'm I'm not a book like I don't know what to say about that but if you can ask me a question that's more precise more Mm -hmm. pointed uh, more specific I might be able to help you and these people were doing that they were learning that that's one form of outer work another form of outer work that I'll mention that I think is really available to everyone is this idea of designing experiments of asking yourself a very poignant and personal research question Um, An example, I just was speaking with a client this morning about this. Can I be happy and productive teaching people what I know how to do? How do I find out? I run a webinar. I offer my services to a high school that has a shortage. I offer tutoring to students who are interested in this field and who have been sent home from college early, right? The purpose is to figure out, I think I know something well enough to teach other people. I think I want to figure out if I could be satisfied by teaching rather than doing myself right now? How can I design an experiment that allows me to collect some data so I can understand that better? And the people who I was interviewing who were succeeding were doing this. They were constantly, consciously collecting new information through small, safe experiments. And that, by the way, is like how I ended up changing my own profession and how I ended up working with a lot of people who are, you know, those days were just like, I just wanna quit and get in the car and drive to California. You know, I'm like, well, let's let's design an experiment, and find out first before you drive to California,
1: <laughs> which is where we're at now, because we had that on our possibility <laughs> list for a decade. We didn't just jump in the car, though. We didn't just we we took we, we took our time there. Um, no, this is actually so helpful. So let's give people a couple of key steps that somebody could take today um to feel more in control of their current situation, which is very uncertain right now for many people. Like let's give them either either an example from a client or, you know, what if I came to you and I was like, oh my goodness, I just my head's spinning. I don't know where to where to
0: begin. I'm overwhelmed. Yeah. Where yeah. would you take me? So I also, I would start with some inner work. And I'd start by saying to somebody, let's look at your work history. Um and the most straightforward simple exercise i have people do is take a pen and write a horizontal line on a piece of paper and i say let's do a, what i call a peak and bleak moment exercise and we'll look at the last 10 to 12 years of your professional life and plot chronologically the moments that would make it above the line are your peak moments moments where you felt great satisfaction productivity uh, flow you know that sense of like i'm doing something i'm supposed to be doing it lines up with my values. It lines up with my skills. It lines up with what my interests are. Let's plot those out. Offer me some details. Below the line, the crappy jobs, the times where you went to work and dragged your feet into the front door. We all have known those. Um, what characterizes those? What's what's going on there? And then we start looking for patterns. All right? So that's an exercise I do with people right from the beginning. Let's just figure out what you are, your own first, primary, most reliable data set to begin with. Yeah, Let's find out. Um, So that's the one thing I'll have people do. Something else you could be doing right now is there's, I mean, I spend a ridiculous amount of time on LinkedIn. Um, Who are the companies you can't keep your eyes off? Who are the CEOs or leaders who are posting content that you're like, yes, that guy, that girl, like, I want more of that time. I want to think like that person, be around that person. Start noticing the companies, the industries, the roles that you are watching, whether it's the news or LinkedIn or whatever media you consume, what does that look look for patterns? Put on your lab coat. Put on your researcher's coat. What are the patterns? That's really important to me. Um, Whose career do you admire or maybe even envy? Right, Envy is a great source of data. you feel a little jealous? Good. Let's find out why because it means something matters to Mm -hmm. you. Let's find out why. So, again, I'm going to tell you that I think a pen and paper is our most – Um, reliable source. It's super available. Most of us have paper and pens in our houses. There's a lot of research to support that that helps us retain information and create new insights. Mm So let's do it. I would start with that. I think everybody can be doing that. That would be the inner work. I would say we could all start with. Outer, I'd say, listen, um, Parker Palmer, who's a teacher and writer I really admire, he always says like inner work is uh personal but it doesn't have to be private so i think from an outer work perspective like who are your people who you can talk to who can you trust is it a coach is it a friend is it a former colleague like who can you just get on the phone with or get on zoom with and say hey i'm really thinking about how i want to spend 40 50 60 hours a week for the next few years and i have a few ideas can you help me create a list can you help me brainstorm can you help me see things I don't see. When we work together, when was I the person you wanted to talk to or the person whose opinion you sought? Why? Like, let's start building a little coterie of people who can help you and who can be your accountability buddies, who can challenge you, who can give you a little dose of courage when you need it. Don't do it alone. So there are two things or a couple things I think anybody can be doing right now.
1: Yeah, such good information there. And the envy piece is interesting because I have this thing called, you know, remember your purpose or discover your purpose, which is just an exercise of a few questions. And one of the things is, who do you envy? Because it's so true. Envy is not an emotion that we want to sit with, or we feel like, wow, I don't want to have that. I I like to be supportive. But it's such a good clue as to, okay, maybe it's because they're in this field, or they have this kind of position, or they're speaking around the world. Like, what are the qualities? What are they doing? Such great information. Um, So When you talked about designing our lives, which is really what the show is about, it's about what's possible. It's such a hard dance between wanting to, I believe we all should have a fulfilled life and really go for what's in our heart. But there's the practical side of that and, you know, purpose. And where do you come out around you know, purpose and passion, and some of these buzzwords everyone loves to talk about, including <laughs> me. I just talked about discover your purpose. But, you know, really, where do you come out on that and how you can design your life so it really is in resonance with your values so that you feel your cup is filled every day, mm-hmm. that you feel mm-hmm. good about the work you're doing? Because you do talk about how your work permeates into all aspects of our lives. So, if you're stressed at work, you bring it home. If yeah. you're, you know, yeah. if you're happy at work, you're, you know, maybe lighter and, you know, just. More lack, so I love your thoughts yeah. on that,
0: yeah, and I'll offer a few, and I can't tell you they're going to be super organized. but um, you said values, I think that's really important. I think that one of the things I've been surprised by in my own life is how much that was, can evolve and change. Um, I think there's a sense that we're always the same person or like our core values are the core. maybe. if I think about myself, some of them are always consistent. but i as i am I've said before, uh, if you would ask me 20 years ago when I started, would having a peaceful home life have like been a value? I w- I couldn't even conceptualize having children then. I couldn't have. So I didn't know that that would matter as much. I probably would have said at the time that being really well compensated meant a lot to me. And now I know it means something to me, but I also have figured out that there can be times where I'm not being as well compensated, but I'm still very delighted by my work. So I think some of those Values need to be updated. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's always something about designing the right life for yourself means paying attention to where your career desires and your life desires are now. I'm very compelled by this. Uh, friend of mine said to me like two or three years ago when I was considering scaling back my work and I was feeling some resistance around that because I'd worked so hard my whole life. She said, Nyla, there are seasons in our lives. If this is a season where our work is going to take a backseat, that's okay. And I have not been able to stop thinking about that for about two and a half years. So I think that's something else. When you think about designing your life is what season are you in right now? And a season can be a couple of months. It can be a couple of years. But I think this idea of updating our lists of needs and wants and values regularly is really key. Uh, paying attention. Mm-hmm. The journaling is my favorite way. I also think your trusted advisors Like the people, your people, you know, that tribe of people you keep closest to you can help you stay honest. Like you keep saying you want to do this, but you don't do it. So what does that really mean? Right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's really important. Um, I think another way to think about designing your life has to do with being comfortable with this concept of running experiments of not being super attached to an outcome and being really open to the fact that your hypothesis might be a little wrong, that something really matters to you or that you would be very good at something. When in fact, it makes you tremble and sweat, not in a good way. So, I think that's really important. On the question of purpose and passion, so I think that that's a lot of pressure to like, I think we're under a lot of pressure collectively in the era of mugs, t shirts, and Instagram to know (laughs) what our purpose is. Like, I'm supposed to wake up and like bound out of bed because I'm summoned by a greater purpose. Uh, I think sometimes people have that, you know, I think back to, I, I teach at a graduate school in public health. And I remember I had like 300 students in a large auditorium. We were talking about this kind of concept. Like what is, how do you figure out what you're designed to do, what you're meant to do? And I said, how many of you guys know what you're meant to do? And I like a handful of people put their hands up and this guy right in the front stood up and he, he just knew exactly what he was meant to do with his life. He'd known since he was a child. It was really all he ever thought about. But he represented like 15% of -hmm. the people in that room. Most Mm -hmm. people are bumbling through the dark trying to figure Mm -hmm. out what they're going to do and what they're meant to do. And so I think of it like the slow discovery process. It's like a slow burn to figure it out. And there's data in our lives if we're paying attention. Mm -hmm. I think that is probably the most important part of this whole conversation we're having is just be paying attention. And noticing and making little pivots here and there, and taking a little more of something in, and reducing the impact of something else that's not suiting you. um, I think it's so much more of an active choice than it is a great awakening. Um, And I think something else that I think about, and that you know, my co-host on my podcast and I talked about recently, is like sometimes the pressure to have your passion, the thing you love, line up with your work is more than we can bear. We can't all make a living. I love to cook, man. I love to be in the kitchen. Like I love it. it makes me feel so great. Put some music on. I make delicious food. It's Come so on fun. Over. I have, <laughs> fine. I'm happy to do it. I cook for everyone, good. but I have no business making my living doing that. Mm-hmm. I'm not good enough. I don't have the stamina for it. I'm not knowledgeable enough. I love it. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I don't want to ruin that. My love for that thing by making it my work, mm-hmm. right? Like, I think that that's okay. I want to have that passion, that thing I love to do that builds mm-hmm. so much reward in my life that has nothing to do with how I make a living. Mm-hmm. Um, it's perfect. I don't know if that answered your question, yeah, but I think perfect. I just say like the pressure around producing a uh, work that is directly tied to your passion and your purpose is just, I think life's hard enough. I don't think we have to layer that love on. love it.
1: I love it. And I actually really agree. Do you think we're on a journey of discovering and remembering? I think we all kind of know when we come in and life clouds up our knowing of ourselves and where we're supposed to be. And it's like part of our path is to is to remember. And there and there's all these clues there. And, and I really believe it and I feel it so deeply. I've, you know, when I've journaled, that's what it said. It's like life is about remembering and it's about remembering love and to just love yourself. And when you're loving yourself, it allows you to take some of those risks when you're getting that information because you said something really important to a lot of things, but the passions can be in your life or, you know, a part of, you know, the thing to fulfill your, your values and your soul and to make you feel good, but it doesn't have to be your purpose. And in terms of the purpose and the remembering and the discovering, that's part of the journey. And, and if you detach from you, you use those words, right? If you detach from like the outcome of what that has to look like and just have fun with it and explore, then that's part of how it unfolds. And I think that helps, but I'm going to ask you a question because I actually just had a conversation with a woman I reconnected with after 15 years who was, in a transition and she said, what do you do when you start doubting yourself? Cause you've had, you've been bitten, you know, your last gig kind of didn't go as the way you thought it would. You were feeling good and then something happened. And I think a lot of people might have those inner voices that are telling them, this is really what the show is about. How do you have the courage to go towards what you actually do feel called to do? Cause that's another layer of it when self doubt is, is in your head now. And you know, Mm.
0: you're, you're, you're starting to question your worth and your value. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I want to come back to this concept of remembering, because I think that is so critical. And in fact, it might tie. So like the, I mean, the concept of the inner critic right? the idea that there's like this little monster, I mean, in my case, she's not little, she's big, um, (laughs) who lives inside and who is, running you know, the constant commentary of like, are you sure? Are you good enough? Are you ready enough? Like we all have a version of this. I think it is, my sense is that it's, um, maybe more present with women than with men. Although, you know, I, I talked to my husband about this and he'll say, yeah, you know, I can be as mean to myself as, as the next person terribly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think when we have a tough experience at work, like you mentioned your friend, you know, the gig didn't go well, right. The sense that like, That thing that on paper was supposed to be awesome. And we're talking about work primarily, but we could be talking about anything. Could be talking about the house I bought. Could be talking about the relationship I'm in. It could be about Pilates for all I care. Like the idea that we think we have found something that's supposed to be really a good match for us and it doesn't work out. Um, Again, I'm going to use the idea of like the lab coat and being the scientist. It only means something if you let it mean something. If you allow it to mean something, it's just information. Otherwise, it's just a neutral fact. It's a fact that sometimes a job is not for you. Sometimes it's a fact that jobs go away. Sometimes it's a fact that other things go away. Um, I think that the real work for us as humans is to see the inner critic or whatever you call that nasty voice in your head and recognize that it's not you. It's not your totality. It's just one misinformed biological instinct to keep you safe. And that is inner critic in my case is, um, trying to protect me from making mistakes, from overstepping, from being unprepared, just wants me to be the good girl. I've always been the good student, the, uh, overachiever, the person who always knew what to do. I mean, she's just trying to say like, don't screw up Nyla, like be good, you know, cause you're safe. If you're good, my work personally, and what I work with a lot of my clients on is to uncover the other voices that live internally that can offer a counterpoint. That's Mm -hmm. the remembering that you talked about. Remember, there's a voice of wisdom and courage in you. There's a voice that's gotten you through hard things before. There's a voice that pushed you through 13 years of doing that doctorate, pushed you through the experience of mothering, of leaving a job that was no longer good for you. Like There is that voice it's not as necessarily well exercised as the inner critic. So that's the like the workout of my life is to get those other voices. And for my case, the voice of wisdom and courage to be as powerful and available to me as the voice of the inner critic to choose to remember that there's capacity for courage, wise decisions, innovation, not knowing, falling on my face and getting back up. And that's okay. That's part of the experience. But I think Um, for all of us, that is, that's really the work. The work is not finding a new job. There will be jobs. Um, the work is not letting yourself become discouraged by the voice of the inner critic who tells you that you're not good enough. You're not ready. You'll never find something suitable. You'll never be valued again. You'll never get paid again. You got to keep that demon at bay.
1: Yeah. It's so interesting. So I'm just going to touch on this very briefly, because what you said, I want to move on to the next part. It's important, but when I was getting certified as an empowerment coach in New York city, 17 years ago, we had to bring in a picture of our inner critic. And curiously what I brought in. Yeah. It was funny. People had like some, you know, gremlins, like really scary stuff. Mine was a picture of me when I was about seven years old. And so when you talked about being the good girl and the protector, I think for me personally, I think my association with the inner critic is like, a younger wounded part that is trying to keep you safe. And that mm-hmm. she, you know, and that's why it's almost a little immature and mean because it's really yeah. like just at this younger part and then embracing those other parts of ourselves and that have more wisdom or they're a little older, they're a little more mature versus maybe that that good girl that's stuck in a time yeah. period where she's afraid for whatever reason. That's been my experience of it. And so it's,
0: totally. It's just, and that I hear that loud and clear. And, I, you know, I sometimes, like when I really did my personal work around the inner critic. Um, She was also probably not just a version of me when I was younger. She's an amalgam of all like, you know, the good girls I knew in my life, Mm -hmm. but that's why I can't be really mean to her because she's, she comes from me. Like she's part of me and she is, young. She is, doesn't know. She thinks this is the only way yes. is to be the best, the first, the fastest, the most prepared. For me, over-preparation <laughs> is like a massive issue, right? Just like, you know, you should see my house. Like, not only do I have like one book on this topic, I have 50 books on mm-hmm. every topic and I have bookmarked them and flagged them and read them and I can cite them because that's like, that's how I've always been ready is to just be I'm, like over-citationed to death. Mm-hmm. And It took me a year. And listen, I know where it comes from. It comes from being in doctoral programs and master's programs, and kind of growing up in academia. Like it's, in many ways, terrible for me. It's not a good alignment with my nature. Um, But that's why I can't be mean to the inner critic. I feel tenderness towards her. I feel like, hey, listen, I know you're trying to help me. Yes. But you're just, you're just misinformed. It's not that scary. Like the world's not out to get me. Yeah. And I'm capable of of succeeding and thriving or, or being at the minimum at peace. That's okay. You don't have to worry so much. Yeah. I'm not mean like people who are like, I punched my fear in the face. Right. I'm always like, <laughs> uh, I, don't think, I don't think that's necessary. Like, can not we be gentle and just be like, Shh, it's okay. Sit down, uh, have, some, have some hot chocolate, relax. The wise one in me will rise to this occasion. And you can rest.
1: That's very funny. Punch it in the face. Yeah, I think yes, and that's how I embrace her. I just go within, and it's like I give her voice so that she can soften, and mm-hmm. the other voices can rise again. Because this—that's beautiful. I love that, I, and I love what I you love said. That. So this was good. I think it's actually going to help people to hear that because, just to give a perspective on how they're seeing theirs, and however they, however you engage with your inner critic is yours to do, and that's. The dance for yourself. But um, so you like to talk about, so let's talk about making work. Mm,
0: mm, and I'm mm-hmm. just going to
1: say that and let, let you take mm-hmm. it. So there's a sure. concept that you have, and you've you just wrote an article about this too. So I love yeah. this. And I think for some people, they're going to be like, I don't have time to think about this, but I'd love to hear you elaborate. Yeah, sure. This.
0: And it comes from the fact, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that uh something that I saw in the people who I studied who were thriving, um, doing was running these experiments. And over the years, that's kind of shaped my thinking around a couple of ways in which we should spend our time. Right. And so again, we're going back to this question of like, if I feel like I don't have enough or appropriate work and I want to be working, not just because I need to be working, but because it's, I believe it's a way of expressing our humanity in the world. How do I begin? And I always say say to people, there's a couple things you should think about, like this kind of working equation, apply for jobs, network, and make work. And when I coach clients, we take that e- equation and we play with it and stretch certain parts and shrink certain parts. But the part that I'm having the most fun with right now is making work. Um, and I think that's especially relevant now because so many people are displaced or without adequate work or... Um, in a place where they just feel stuck. And making work allows us to have agency. Like The primary principle behind making work is that it allows us to take the thing we love, the thing we know how to do, the thing we're curious about, something that means something to us, and create something without the requirement of an employer, a job, a prospect, someone else's directions. It's the freest way I know how to express ourselves in the world professionally. Making work is not always for public consumption. Sometimes it is for private consumption. It's the idea of saying there's something I know how to do or I'm interested enough to do to build something. Um, for some people, including some of my clients, that means literally making something. Painting or writing. Um, <laughs> for my kids right now, it's like coloring their hair a whole bunch of different colors and making <laughs> videos about the process of how they dye. They're, that's making work. Making work is... Um, also something like codifying what you know how to do, right? So for instance, a friend of mine who works in executive education was feeling restless and that maybe her ideas weren't getting the platform they needed at work. So I said, let's figure out something you know how to do. I have a, And she had a strong opinion about how to launch teams in executive education. So she ended up writing a 10-part piece for LinkedIn that codified what she knows how to do after 15 years of doing her work. What does she believe the world needs to understand about her field? Mm. For people who are out of work, I'll sometimes say to them Imagine your first 30 days back in your new job. Write the playbook, mm. create the deck, um, make something that shows and demonstrates your knowledge base, keeps your skills sharp, helps you build the narrative you're going to need when you're back in the interview world. Um, doesn't, no one has to see it. But at least it's the idea that we are taking responsibility and creating the terms in which we participate with work. So there's creative projects, there's codifying, there's teaching other people, right? Taking the thing you know how to do and creating a, this is what my daughter's doing with her hair dyeing videos, like, you know, a few minutes on YouTube, whatever. But the idea is that we're not, it's the idea of agency that we talked about earlier. This is a way to regain your agency and to make things without someone else telling you what to do. I think this is a great time to be making work. I'm telling everybody I can, who will listen to me, please try to make something. Um, set the terms. Create the conditions. Take responsibility for your own work. Let's do it.
1: I love that because it can be something that maybe is becomes like a side gig that turns into a full-time gig or it's something just for your own sense of, satisfaction and just for the creative process. And you know what's helpful hearing you talk about that is I was in a musical theater group growing up and I love singing. Mm. But as I got older, I just stopped singing and I don't believe that I can sing, but I like writing music. So I have actually been taking vocal lessons and oh. taking my words and putting them to music and nobody hears them other than my family, but they make, it makes me happy. Yeah. It makes and it me builds-
0: yeah. It builds self-efficacy, too. It builds the sense that I can create something and finish something. I can conceptualize something and do it. I don't need a boss. I don't need an organization. Right. So for people who are out of work and who are feeling stuck, this is one of the ways in which they regain their sense of self, their sense of agency. Hmm. By the way, it's one of the ways in which they can kind of account for their time, right? So that's hmm. a personal need. It's also something you want to be able to tell people when this is over, um, what'd you do with four months? Oh, you know what I did? I codified my knowledge around my 15 years or 30 years of experience in this field. I taught myself a new skill. I rekindled my affection for a, a hobby or an outlet that I loved when I was younger. I had no time for when the kids were small. I think that we need this ourselves personally. Mm. Um, and something that you know I hear a lot from people who are out of work. is like, how do I tell the story of what I did if I'm not employed? One of the reasons I'm going to take a crappy job I know is beneath my skill level so that I can tell people I was doing something. Mm. And I think making work is an alternative to taking a crappy job. Um, if you can afford it. Right. If, if you can you know, afford make, it. If you can afford it, which is reality. Like I would never, again, I say this all the time, I would never discount the reality that sometimes you have to take work that's not aligned to our purpose and Passion, by the way, which can again be like very limiting. Right. Um, of course, um, we need to do what we need to do for our families and for our well-being. I think making work is something that is does not have to be time-consuming. It doesn't have to be costly, and you get to decide the terms. And when we are feeling underemployed or unemployed, these are the things that we lose. So. That's my philosophy on making work.
1: Love it. Um, So I'm thinking more about, I I always ask my guests, what are your three best tips on living a good life? But I've really been thinking about the concept of loving yourself Mm. and self-love is the foundation for everything good in your life. So I'm curious, how do you think self-love factors into living a good life and how do you incorporate it in your own?
0: Yeah, I love that question uh, so much because, you know, this is one of the ways we talked about our inner critic. Um, one of the ways she shows up for me is like, first you do your work, then you get to be nice to yourself, right? Like you're not, you haven't worked hard enough.
1: You didn't earn it.
0: Yeah. You get a reward only for working hard, not for being like a a human in the first place. So that I've had to unlearn a lot of that personally. Um, I think our relationship with work, like our relationship with our loved ones is must be built upon self-regard self-love and self-compassion. The idea that we are worthy of belonging to the world. We are worthy of expressing our professional gifts into the world. We are worthy, of course, of being respected and safe at work, all those things. If we don't believe that, we're always going to settle for jobs that are not good for us. Um, and Lord knows I've done that. I think we've all done that. We've all settled because we thought we weren't worthy of something better. So I love that we can talk about love and work. Um, I remember once I, after higher ed, I dipped my toe in corporate for a few years and I remember talking about love at work and the, and I was in a room of like a mixed room of HR people. And you saw some people like kind of turn their heads with curiosity and some people just, what? Um, so I just think, I love that we can say the word love here. Um, I think self-love, uh, is the foundation. So we, I think we agree on that. Mm. What are the habits? Is that your question? What are the habits? I'm
1: just curious how it how you incorporate it in your life.
0: What do you do to um,
1: bring self-love into your day?
0: Yeah. So I think what I do actively all day long is conjure up what I call the wise one who is the part of me who is, um, balanced and courageous and comfortable. Uh, that's the primary way in which I conjure that is just to talk to myself all day long uh, more than I listen to myself. Um, that's a really important thing for me. I think there's also just trying to debunk this myth that I have to suffer in order to earn things that feel mm. good. Um, and the things that feel good are not like always big, fancy things, but it might be a few minutes of just reading rather than producing, a few minutes of sitting on the front steps rather than taking every Zoom call that I'm invited to. Um, there's, I have been really interested in habits and routines, um, and experimenting over the course of the last couple of years with what makes sense for me, what's good for me. You and I have talked about journaling quite a bit. I notice a massive difference in myself if I'm doing it versus if I'm not doing it. If I'm not putting it in, I, uh, my brain is a wild and dangerous place and I need to, it really helps me to get it out. Um, I've also, you would, you would never have believed this had you known me in my younger years, but I found that exercise is like a massive part of my life now. Mm. Um, I learned very much the hard way that um, if I don't take care of myself, uh, bad things are going to happen to my body. So um, I, I would say maybe three years ago, I kind of walked into a gym and finally dealt with an old injury that I had let go on forever. One of the ways in which I have learned to love myself is to take care of my body as though it is its own entity mm. and not just a vehicle for my brain to move around in. Um, and so that has been a really important way for me to respect and care for myself is to tend to my physical well-being. Um, not always perfectly, of course, but um, that is those are some of the things I'm playing with myself. It's
1: beautiful. Thank you. Nyla, I've loved this conversation. Where can people learn more about you and your work?
0: Um, you can go to my website, which is nylabari.com, and it's spelled N-A-Y-L-A-B-A-H-R-I.com. And you can see a bunch of my work. You can see my thoughts and my, you know, I don't really call it a blog, but like my insights page. Um, there's a link to the podcast that Eric Johnson and I have launched um, okay. early this spring, which is about work. Thank you. Um, and um, I'll be running a couple of career groups this spring and summer because I think people really need to think about how to get back to work and I want to help them do it in communities so you can keep an eye out for that too
1: wonderful thank you I really love this conversation I so appreciate your time
0: Thank thank you so so much it's been really my pleasure
1: I've decided to extend my offer of my book for free through the month of May and if you know of somebody who would benefit from reading Design a Life You Love A Woman's Guide to Living a Happier and More Fulfilled Life Feel free to direct them to thegoodlifecoach.com. It's actually a great book too for young women who are graduating college or just starting out in their careers. It covers life, love, body, career, relationships, and simplicity. If this interview resonated with you and you know of somebody who would benefit from the information, please do take a second to share it. Thank you so much for tuning in today and I look forward to reconnecting with you next Wednesday. Bye for now.